Dads, well done. Well done. Some of you have been in the game for a lot longer than others, some just beginning. But well done. I have watched very closely. Not Deb, settle down. Settle. We'll get there. But well done. It's not an easy journey. It's not a it's not a walk in the park, as they'd say, but there's ups and downs, there's hard parts. But you know, God is so delighted. God is so delighted by a father who will lead a child in the way of him, that'll lead a child the way he is led. And I know for all of you how hard and how how well you've put that in. So well done. I do not have a Father's Day sermon this morning. Shock and awe, I know. But I did sit down with Hayes and we spoke about Father's Day and I, I, I really do feel the weight and the importance of Father's Day. And I, I feel the weight and the importance on fathers. And hopefully there'll be a lot of those conversations that take place um, when we go out the back. Mal set up like a tent and everything out there. It's wild. <laughs> well, no one wants to be in here. We all want to be out there now. But after the service, I'm going to ask this. The father, no father pays for a coffee, but they're also not free. Why? Because I want the non-fathers, myself included, to honor those fathers. Go and buy them a coffee. I can make it free and, and the church can sort it out, but... That doesn't allow you to go and bless a a father. So non-daddies, go and buy a daddy a coffee. And don't buy your your spouse one. Don't be that person. Go and buy another daddy. And if you're a daddy who hasn't got a coffee this morning, just just raise your hand wherever you are. Just hold it up. And a non-daddy, a non-daddy will come and get you a coffee. And there is donuts at the back. Same thing. I'm going to rouse the kids if the kids steal all the daddy donuts. But I really, I, I was, during the week, I was sitting and asking God and just pondering and praying. And then I was on a, a long phone conversation with, with Paul Tothill. And, and this verse came up as we were discussing. And I, I really just felt that there's, there's a time right now to encourage a people to actually come in to what it is God's doing. That we have spent the last four or five weeks, pardon me, um, walking through Job, walking through sacrifice, walking through laying down of yourself, removing pride, making it not about you, but making it about Him. We've, we've been a long way through that. And I hope that that's been extraordinarily challenging and extraordinarily encouraging because it has been for me. Like I said to someone the other day, I know it's challenging. I have to write the sermon. I have to sit there and be challenged as it comes to my heart and as I put the words on paper. So when, when I stand here and preach it, it's, it's not that I've got this all under control. It's just I had to get the slap during the week when I wrote it. So I, I've been saying to God, God, where, what do we do? How do we move forward? And, and this word came and, and God just started to really just encourage me in this place. So if you've got a Bible, go with me to Jeremiah 33. I'm going to read quite a hefty portion of Scripture And then I'm going to break it down and then I'm going to explain a couple of things that I've been feeling and then, I don't know, past there. We'll see how we go. Jeremiah 33. Verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of the city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fight them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from the city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and receive them, uh, sorry, and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all their guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. 
and this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste without man or beast, and in all of its cities there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shapila, and in the cities of Negev, and in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So this is a very interesting portion of scripture that comes off the back of the uh, sermon that I preached a few weeks ago about the difference between uh, Judah and Israel when they get caught in, in um, whoring themselves out to the city and they come back in and they give themselves with fullness of heart. And when a, when a, when a, people, when a, when a people come and give themselves in fullness of heart, God will restore them. But we see Judah comes and comes with partiality in her heart. She comes in a way that she says, I'm coming back, but only some of me is coming back. And God says, because of that, because of the partiality in her heart, I will, I will rebuke her. I will not bring her in. But then obviously there's a, a change as we go along. That's why Jeremiah is such a, a challenging book. There's so much rebuke and so much picture for hope. But we see here an incredible picture of hope. And I just want to break down this verse because I really believe that at the moment, this is where we sit as a people. We are at the moment in a place where there is no man or beast, where there is no inhabitants in the land. There is this lostness. There is this, this emptiness, this confusion that's ridding the land. There's this, I'm not sure what way to go, one way or the other. But God says here in verse three that if we call to him, if we call to him and trust in him, that there will be an answer. If we bring ourselves before him and say, God, it's you I'm calling to, it's you I'm relying on, it's you I'm trusting, there will be an answer. Verse four and five explains that there will be more battle to come, that we are not going to be rid of the fight until we all move into glory, that there is a battleground that we are constantly on. Paul makes that abundantly clear all through the New Testament that there is a war taking place, that as Christians, we are wrestling fight after fight after fight. But there is times of peace and there's times of battle in a war. There's times of breakthrough and there's times of overthrow. There's times where we come through the front lines and we get ready to go through the next line. And there's times where we sack the city and from that place, we hold ourselves to glorify and to worship him. In the, in the Christian realm, we, we, have, we have overused to an extent the word seasons and we've made it all a fluffy time that it's a next fun new season. And while that is true, there is also a next new season where you've got to put on some armor. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I love the film, Troy. And there's this scene where they cut to the city of Troy and it's beautiful, there's flowers and there's, there's, there's celebration, there's party and there's all these wise men sitting around in these beautiful blue and white robes and they're just sitting there and they're eating fine wine and they're drinking. But then the, I think it's the Greeks, but I'm not sure, I can't remember what, whoever it is. I know his name's Agamemnon, but he comes, to the, he comes to the shores and the bell rings. And in the city, in this beautiful place of peace, the bell rings. And there's this moment where all of the soldiers, including the wise men who are sitting around, have to, have to saddle up, put, put saddles on their horses, put the armor on. That's still a season. So there's times for us where there's times of rest and peace, there's times of battle, there's times to armor up, there's times to ready ourselves. And God moves us through that. There will be more battle to come. Verse six takes us through and it says that a people will be brought to health and healing, prosperity and security. That's a naughty P word in there, prosperity. But we will be brought to health 
healing, prosperity, security. God will bring a people into the fullness of who he is. But see, this is the thing that we've gone wrong with prosperity. This is the thing that we've, we've misunderstood is that we made it all about prosperity. We made it all about the fact that I should prosper. It's my right to prosper. No, it's your right to be with him. He's given you that right. It's your right to stand in who he is. And in that, there will be prosperity of health. There will be prosperity of finances. There will be prosperity in a people because God has promised that there will be prosperity in a people. See, the kingdom operates in a way that's greater than the realm of the world. Do we believe that? Just Dan. Just Dan believes that. Is it? Do we believe that? Yes. That the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of the world. We believe that. Yeah. We get to operate from that place. We get to operate from that place. But it never, ever, ever becomes about the things of which God gives to us. Ever. It always becomes about Him. I explained a few weeks ago that finances are like a river. They're not supposed to be walled in. That it goes stagnant. When water gets stopped in one place, it goes stagnant. The more I give out, the more comes in. Why? Because it's a river that flows through God. There's a river that flows through God. Eloi, can you pull me down just a little bit, please? It's a river that flows. Can I tell you, Jess and I, in the last three months, are in a place that we never thought we would be in. We have joked about this about this dream, about this thing that's, that has always been in front of us. And financially, one day we'll get there. And I said, you know, babe, what if we never get there? Are we okay with that? What if we never get there? Are we okay with that? And, you know, we came to this place where we, where we, we settled that we would live in the house we're in for the rest of our lives. We thank God for that house that we're in every day. Hey, every day we thank God for that house. Why? Because it doesn't matter about the stuff. It doesn't matter about the things. I'm not trying to get more so that I can say, look how much God loves me and he's blessed me. No, it, that stuff doesn't matter. But I'll never ever stop finances going out of our home. Why? Because when I start to give out more, finances flow through who I am. It never matters about the finances. But what it does matter is the things that we've been able to do for the people around us. Times where we've been at dinner with people and been able to pay for the entire table and have them go, I don't understand why you did that. And that's not about us being heroes or superstars. That's about saying God's kingdom and God's wealth is not touching the people because we won't let it. But when we will let it, when we will let the fullness of the kingdom of God, prosperity and health, finances, fathering, parenting, the way we operate at work, when those things flow through us, God will flow more through you. God has said here in this that he is to bring a people into health, healing, prosperity, and security. If you're not operating in any one of those at the moment, you can bring yourself before God and say, how do I get out of this place? Don't think about it as getting the red Ferrari. Think about it as not having to get to the end of the week and working out how I'm gonna feed my kids this week. That's where God brings us to. That's where he's leading a people. Verse eight says, restoring us and cleansing us from guilt of rebellion against him. See, guilt comes when you understand you have done something wrong. Guilt comes when you understand you have done something wrong. Why is this important? Because we don't have to live with guilt. Because God will remove the guilt from us. However, we have to understand the areas of our life where we're not living the way he's asked us to live so that we can change that place in our heart. See, God is saying that there's a promise to come for a people. There's a rebuilding and a reestablishing, but there's something that we as a people have to begin to operate and walk in so that that reestablishment can take place. See, guilt is not something that you should have. If there is a guilt right now, please, at the end of this, come, I wanna pray for you to break that off. But you know the thing about guilt is that you've realized, flip, I've done something that I shouldn't have done. And that place leads you to repentance. And that place leads you into God. But God's saying, I'll take the guilt from you, my son. I'll take the guilt from you. 
Because we now live in a place, I was in a conversation during the week where I got to explain the fact that Jesus, when he died on the cross, it it was like going into a, a courtroom and the judge says, okay, these are your list of crimes, Jess. These are your list, list of crimes. And, and the judge says, how do you plead? And we look around and we go, well, can we explain this? And Jesus steps up and he says, I've taken this. I've taken this. Jess has nothing left to answer for because I've taken it. I paid for all of it. What does she have left on her rap sheet? All of those, yeah, I paid for them. She's free to go. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus steps us in to wipe everything she's done away, which means that the guilt and the condemnation on what she's done goes with it. But her understanding of that was not how I should have lived my life. This is how I live my life. That's what changes the people. That's what changes us to repent, to shift our mind into the things that He has for us and the things that He wants us to do. Number nine, this city is turned into a name of joy, a praise and glory before all nations. This city is turned into a name of joy, a praise and a glory before our nations. As a people, we want to be operating in a place that when we go into a cafe, when we go into a restaurant, we carry with us joy and praise of the King. We carry with us this smell that Mike Elchingham used to talk about it as a fragrance of God, a sweet aroma that when people see you, when people see you in their cafes, when people see you in their homes, in their shops, there's this sweet, beautiful aroma about you where I don't know why, but you're always so happy. You're always so joyous. That's what he's talking about here. That Jerusalem, my people, would be a city known for the joy and the glory before all nations. When we operate in who God says we are, people can't help but ask, what in the world is going on with you? Eleven and twelve, there shall be herd again and shepherds letting their flock to rest. We have in this time been in a very turbulent time where rest has seen almost non existent. Has anyone else felt that? It's just been busy. And you know, everyone I bump into, man, how are you? It's busy. Man, it's busy. Do you know what happens when you get busy? You forget stuff. Things get overlooked. Paperwork piles up. Phone calls don't happen. This doesn't happen, that doesn't happen. Why? Because there's a shift away from what I should be looking at onto just get through the busy time because I don't have anything else to do. And Jesus promises right here that flocks will once again herd, sorry, there shall be herd again and shepherds letting their flocks to rest. That when you come before the king, when you come before God, it says that he leads you to to waters. He leads you to the still places. He leads you into rest. That there's a people who have been overworked and overbusied that we've forgotten to go to the water. We've forgotten to go and sit beside the brook and drink from the things of God. That there's been a busyness and a heaviness resting on people that has allowed you to forget the face of Jesus. To have that song, we'll wait for you, God, I'll wait for you, is in my busyness, I will quieten myself and worship you. In my busyness, I will slow myself down and I'll worship you. You know, I've felt exactly the same. Busy. These weeks have been massive, huge. And I felt God say to me one day, put down what's in your hands and come before me. I didn't do anything with it. I was like, oh, that's too hard. So I didn't do anything. I left it aside and I continued on my, my work. I was sitting at my office. I was, I was writing something. Um, I might have been writing a sermon. I was writing something for somebody, a reference or something. And it was about 5.30ish. So I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm gonna go home. So I closed my computer. I came downstairs and Ario, the guy who leads the church after us, was standing in the kitchen, just standing there. And he says, hey, bro, when are we gonna get together and just worship and pray just standing there <laughs> I said hey you didn't hear what God told me did you he looked at me really funny and he goes should I I said no because then I'd be in trouble I said we'll do it tomorrow let's go we'll meet right here and since then for five weeks church leaders are coming half day full days four hours we just put a pad on and we just come and lay here 
And I was, hitting, I was sitting here last week on Wednesday and I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. I was laying right here thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. I'm a grown man who should be upstairs working to earn a living to provide for my family and I'm down here laying on the carpet hoping that God's gonna move. But what happened was, was I realized I got up off the floor when I heard the voice of God say to me, get out your blueprints, which I'm gonna speak about in a minute. But I got off the floor and there was, there was eight grown men and women in the same position that I was in. And I thought, that's what we've lost in this time. That's what's being lost, is a, the herd of people coming before him and, and giving away everything. And I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. Yes, Ben, but you can do that because you don't work a nine to five job. Yes, I understand that. My job allows me the freedom to come and lay on the carpet and worship him. I understand that. But I also got another challenge because week, a week and a half ago, I deleted Facebook off my phone because I got one of those pop-ups on the iPhone that tell you how many hours you've spent on it. I was, I was a little bit heartbroken. And I realized that I was flipping through video after video after video of nonsense. And then I looked at how much time and I said, we all say we don't have enough time. God, I don't have enough time to come before you. Let me challenge you, go to a little setting on your phone and look at the Facebook app, just the Facebook app, and look at how much time there is at the end of the week. And let me ask you a challenge because I had to go through this challenge. And now I pick up my phone and I'm like, oh, it's boring, there's nothing on there and I just put it down because there's nothing to look at. I look at the news in the morning, that's about it, there's nothing else. But you look at the time that ticks up on that little Facebook app and you realize, flip, there's 10 hours, 15 hours, 20 hours, nearly a full day in a week that I said I didn't have enough time to come before you, oh God. To come by the brook, I need to hurry. I need to maneuver through this. Uh, Number 13, flocks will once again pass under the hand of the one who counts them. Who's the one who counts the flock? Who's the great shepherd? Jesus. That flocks again will come under the hand of the one who counts them. That means that there's been flocks of God who have not been under the hand of Jesus that as a people, this verse right here, this line right here, more than everything, anything, brings me back to say, God, this is your community. This is your church. Please help me lead all of us, myself included, under your hand as the one who counts us. The church of Jesus Christ, the body, cannot forget who the head is. Cannot forget who the head is, because it's his hand that counts us, that once again we will be led back. The last verse ends with, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. A couple of weeks ago, I was at breakfast with a friend who leads another church here in the city, and he's a very prophetic guy, incredibly prophetic. And we hadn't caught up in a, in a couple of months and we're sitting down and we're chatting and I was pretty tired. I was pretty beat. I was pretty frustrated. And I was, I, I was a bit excited to go and sit with him, just hang out. I wasn't expecting a word. I wasn't expecting anything. We were sitting there and we're chatting and, and he said to me, he started to prophesy over me. He started to prophesy over this house and, and just at breakfast, just off the cuff, just started to say stuff. And me... In my nonsense, I said, hey, bro, I love it. Thank you. I'm encouraged. I'm excited. But I said, but at the same time, it's another carrot that's just in front of us. It's another just there. It's another just over the hill. It's another prophecy that, that is just not quite in our grasp. And I was in the wrong. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I was, I was almost frustrated. He laughed openly, out loud. He laughed at me. Because I said to him, bro, you, among with a number of other incredible prophets, prophesied that 2020 would be the year of vision. I said, bro, I've never been felt, and I know a lot of people have never felt more visionless in this year. 
He laughed again. And he said, bro, you misinterpreted, the, you misinterpreted the prophecy. I said, what do you mean? He said, let me explain it to you. He said, what's vision? I said, something you can see. He said, yeah, you see what's in front of you, right? I said, yeah. And I was explaining to him like this. He said, take off your glasses. I took my glasses off. He said, it's blurry, isn't it? I said, yeah, very blurry. He said, now put your glasses back on. So I put my glasses back on. He said, you now have 20-20 vision. What do you see? I said, well, I see what's in front of me. I see you and I see the meal. He said, the prophecy wasn't for something spectacular that was to come. The prophecy was everything that was in front of the church. Everything that was in their hands. Everything that's been before them. He said, so guess what? If you had mess and garbage before you, guess what you see? The mess and the garbage. If you had error before you, guess what you see? You see the error. You only see what was put before you. And right then I was like, oh man, that's where the church is at. He said to me, why? What are you thinking? I said, because we all checked, got to see what was in our hearts. We all got to see what was in our hearts and what was before us. And we've had so many people, man, international Christians, renounce the faith and walk away from God. We've had so many people walk away from the church. We've had so many people walk away from gathering together because all of a sudden there was a revelation of what was in their heart and they started to see, wow, I see what I'm really doing here and it's a waste of my time. Christian leaders, as a big, a big Christian leader who's written so many books, just recently said, I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with God and he walked away. I know of in this city, five churches that have closed their doors or had massive amounts of sin that have been revealed that have made the church rock because the 2020 vision was the glasses were put on and all of a sudden the light started to shine in the darkness. All of a sudden things started to be revealed that, that were always there but we could never see that they were there. All of a sudden the position of our heart, the place of our heart starts to come out and it starts to make sense what it really looks like. Do I really love God? Do I really? And for me, that's been the thing. The, the vision inside me has been 2020. So in this place, I laughed at him. He said, he said bro, you, you, you were quite, uh, quite ready to discount my prophecy. I said, oh, I wasn't ready to discount your prophecy. I was just frustrated in, the, in, in where we've been. And when I went home, I was praying and asking God, God, what is that? What is that nonsense that I would sit before a prophet of you that I really believe is a prophet of you and say, I just can't quite grasp what, what it is that you're saying. And something dropped into my heart from my study back in high school about modern history. When I was studying World War I and II, there's a thing called, called combat stress reaction or shell shock. And what shell shock is or combat stress reaction is that you get yourself in a position in war where you lose the ability to understand why you're there. You lose the ability to continue to fight because the cause around you begins to become blurry and not make any sense. The most common symptoms are fatigue, slower reaction times, indecision, disconnection from one's surrounding and the inability to prioritize. The best way to describe it is that in the midst of the battle, you lose sight of the things in which you're fighting for. Right there with battle fatigue, right there in the middle, you realize, what in the world am I doing? You ever seen those movies? I think it's, it's on um, Saving Private Ryan where they come up on the beach and the shell smashes and there's always that, that real unusual audio and they're like looking around and they don't know what's going on. That's battle fatigue. And what they have to do in most cases to bring someone, if a soldier can't come back quickly enough, what they do is they take the soldier and they remove them from the front and they bring them to a place where it's quiet and where they can be rest and rehealed and they can, can get their senses back and get back what it is that's around them. The church for the last couple of months has been in combat stress reaction. We have been confused, lost. There's been so much noise around us. There's been so much happening, not just here in, in, in a corporate setting, but in a private setting, in a one-on-one, -on -one, that all of a sudden we start asking ourselves, hey, what am I even fighting for? What is all this about? 
what is actually happening in this place? What is really taking, taking, I'm just, I'm done, I'm lethargic and I'm tired. Right there at that breakfast with my friend, I experienced this firsthand. The best way that we can heal from this, the best way that we can, we can walk out of this is to come away with God to a quiet place where we can regain our conscience, where we can regain who we are, where we can regain what it is we're fighting for, where we can regain that zealousness of God. I want to see your kingdom, David. I want to worship you. I want to glorify you. I don't have to wake up in the morning and read my Bible. I don't have to come and gather with people on whatever day it is they gather. I don't have to stand and worship you and thank you for who you are. But in fact, I want to because of who you are. There's this zealousness. There's this re-emergence of a passion and a drive to actually worship Him. When I was laying here on the ground, I heard God say to me, get out your blueprints and dust them off. Get out your blueprints and dust them off. And, I, and as I was continuing to pray, I said, God, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I have a document on my computer that when, when Jess and I were first given the dream to, to, to lead this community, it's called the church blueprint. And I realized God was saying to me, everything I've said to you, I'm a, pro, I'm a, I'm a keeper of my promise. Everything I said to you still is in play, still makes sense, is still gonna come forth. So then I got a little bit more excited and I thought, God, all the prophetic words we've ever had over our life are all blueprints that you've given me for my life. See, Psalm says that when we were, when we were knitted together in our mother's womb, God had written a book that was about our life. It doesn't matter what the mess looks like out in the world. If God's written it on your scroll, he promised to bring it to fruition. So for all of us, what promises has God made to you? I don't mean what job or what house or what car. I mean, what promise has he made you as an individual to come into who he is, to see more of him? Because those things aren't dead. Those things aren't finished. Those things aren't wrapped out, wrapped up rather because the world out there is in a mess. Those things are still valid today. But we, in our battle weariness, have lost the view and the vision to see what it is God's asked us to do. I'm gonna be really honest. In these last four or five weeks, I have questioned whether or not we should keep these doors open. In tears, I have been on the floor. God, what are we doing? Is this really, in my tiredness, in my battle weariness, I've said, God, is this, is this what it's supposed to look like? This is too hard. You're asking me something that's too hard and you haven't given me a clear vision. What do we do? And right there in the place on the floor, he says, get out your blueprints. Remember what I promised you. Remember what I promised you. The last point in this verse is that God will keep his word. But do you believe that? Do I believe that? And I don't mean, oh, of course I believe it because God loves me. No, when all the noise, when all the lights get turned off, when everyone goes home and there's just you and one square of carpet, do you believe that? I have to tell you, it's been a journey over the last four or five weeks and there's been times where I haven't. But now, more than ever, I believe in what God first showed me. I believe in every prophetic word that I've heard him say, spoken over my life, to say, God, you are who you said you are. I trust you. It makes no sense out there, but it makes every piece of sense in here. Go to Luke 8 for me. Sorry, that was a bit forward. Please, if you would mind going to Luke 8 with me. <laughs> Uh, Luke 8, down to verse 43. I want to show you how God, sometimes Jesus' plans make absolute zero sense in the natural, but in the heavenlies and in the spiritual, He knows exactly what He's doing. From verse 40, sorry. It, does 40 start with now when Jesus returned? 
Okay, from verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And, they, and they, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And, f- and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive a power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that, she was not hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared the presence of all the people, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will, she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but she said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he changed them to tell no one what he had happened, to tell no one what had happened. Phenomenal story. Jesus, walking through, gets met by a man, Jarius. Jarius is a well-known preacher in a synagogue. He would have been a rabbi. He would have been a high priest, a teacher. He was one who would have followed the law of Judaism. He would have followed the law that was given comes to Jesus says my daughter is sick obviously he has nothing less the daughter's died he's tried all the things he can he knows of this one preacher that's been throughout the town Jesus maybe if I go to him the last hope he can maybe come and save my daughter Jesus goes into the into the crowd he's walking through everyone gets excited they come around him but you can't forget that he's going to Jarius he's going to see a a young girl healed. And in the midst, this lady with the issue of blood, which carries with it so much prophetic picture, but I'm gonna just leave that where it is. But he, she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment. She touches the hem of his garment. She's instantly healed. What you have to remember is often in this time when Jesus was ministering, he told them, do not open your mouth as to what I've just done for you. He operated in healing in secret because he didn't want what was happening to get out until the time has come, except for this story. She reaches out, she heals. He could have easily continued on his way, could have easily known that she had done it, prayed for her, left her be, except he doesn't do that. He yells that someone's touched me, someone's grabbed me, someone's, someone's touched me, who was it? Who was it? He stops everything. And he draws the attention to this lady who touched him with what? An issue of blood, which made her what? Unclean. He makes a big hullabaloo, a song and a dance to tell the people that he had been made unclean. Of course, she gets healed. It's phenomenal. But he continues on his journey. Jarius comes. He says, still, will you come, please? Will you come and heal my daughter? And in that place, all the people that were around Jarius, all the other priests and, and his friends come to him and say, she's gone. Don't worry about it. See, so often in our lives, so often we get to a place where we go, it's out of your control. You can't do anything now. It's finished. Don't worry about it. But that's right where God wants us. It's right where Jesus comes and moves because we now go, I've got nothing left. At the end of myself, I realize nothing can heal my daughter, but maybe a glimpse that Jesus will come and heal my daughter. And right in that midst, they balk at him, the same as the friends who who yelled at Job to say, this God's never gonna heal your daughter. This is never gonna work. That nonsense, praying for your friend who, who's into drugs and, and alcohol and, and you know, is, is living a life, he's never gonna come. Jesus is never gonna be able to heal that. That guy's done, he's finished. Or that situation that's before you, that, that financial crisis or, or that thing that doesn't seem to budge, it's finished, just let it go. 
But Jesus says right in that place where we come and say, I've got nothing left, Jesus will move and change that person. But we can't forget that, that he's going to Jairus' daughter. So he makes this big hullabaloo, hullabaloo about who touched me, who touched me, who was it? Now all the crowd turns to see this woman that they would have known being a woman with an issue of blood says it was me. The unclean. Guess what? In the eyes of the law, that makes Jesus unclean. That all then the rabbis and the teachers of the law would have seen him to say, you've been touched by an unclean unclean person, you are unclean. And you start thinking, Jesus, what were you doing? But Jesus knew that if he got to the house where the daughter was, if he got to the place where she had died, by right of Jewish law, he would not have been allowed in because a clean rabbi is not allowed into the room where there's an undead person. A clean rabbi is not allowed into the place where somebody has died. So in Jesus' absolute genius, in his absolute understanding of the law and and who he was and who God said he was, he allows everybody around him to know that he had been touched by somebody who was unclean, therefore making him unclean so that he could go into the place and lay hands on the daughter to say, get up. Get up and come back to me. See, we are in a time right now where it makes zero sense. We are in a time right now where nothing makes sense out there. But God is saying to us, trust me, trust me. My plan doesn't make sense to you right now, but I promise as you begin to see it unfold, as you begin to see it unpack, it's gonna make total sense and it's gonna be in your favor because I know what you carry to bring the kingdom in. Does that make sense? Jesus' plan is better than yours. Jesus' plan knew that if this lady touches me, I will become unclean. I will become able to go and pray for the one who you've said is dead and gone, but I know is just sleeping and I can bring her back. And then he charges them to say, tell nobody. Go back to the original plan. Tell nobody what's happened here. Because he knew, he knew in that moment that there was something to happen. I'm going to finish with this. On the Jewish calendar, which is different to the calendar that we operate by, the Jewish calendar at this moment is the last month of their year. It's the last month before they come into a new year, before they come into a new, a new calendar year. And the month that they understand, the Jewish people right now and would have understood back then, is that this is a month called the month of Elul. And Elul means this. The letters are from the word, Anili Dudi Viduti, and it means, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. It comes from Song of Songs 6, 2 verse 3. It says this. She, my beloved, has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. This time they knew as a time where the king was in the field, where the king would come from his high place to come and be with the people in the field. They worshiped Yahweh in a time when they understood that he wasn't up there, he was down here with his people. See, we obviously understand now as of Jesus and coming through the cross and understanding that we actually get to be in Him, that He walks with us, He operates with us all the time. But this month was a month of praise and worship. It was a month that resembled the holy portions of the calendar. Elul is a haven in time, a city of refuge from the ravages of maternal life, a time to audit one's spiritual accounts and assess the year gone by, a time to prepare for the days of awe of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur by repenting the failings of the past and resolving for the future. A time to increase in Torah study, prayer and charitable activities. Elul is the opportune time for all of this because it's a month in which God relates to us in a more open and compassionate manner than he does the other months in the year. You see, they understood that this was a time we come before the king in complete awe and understanding of who he is, to repent, to say, God, we've been missing it. 
How do we do it? To walk. I, when, when I read this and when I saw this, I saw this just beautiful picture of, of just an open field and God delighting with us as we walk through, delighting with these people to see the things of the land, to see, to talk, to, to have this connection one-on-one that was beautiful. That's the place that we actually get to come to. Why? Because the next moment, the next year, the beginning, the next season in the Jewish calendar, the next season in the time was that, okay, now we're on. Now we're ready to go. God's led us to a place. He's directed us into a place. The king is in the field. That's a phenomenal picture when you think about it. That the king of glory, Yahweh, even in those times, there was a picture painted, we will walk together in the rule of the day. We will walk together in the spirit. We will walk together one-to-one, person-to-person, hand-in-hand. There's a relational aspect of this. There's a relational picture that together we will walk. And I want to finish with this. Psalms 46, verse 2. To the choir master of the songs of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear through the earth, sorry, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is exactly what everything that's been leading up to now is saying, come away with me and be still and I will break the things that are trying to break you. Come away from that battle weariness. Come away from that wrestle. Come away from that there's too much going on and be still with me and I will reveal to you where it is we're going, how I break the bow, how I toil the sword. That in this time right now, God is saying to us, that the king is in the field. The king is in the field. Take this, take this in, take all those verses that I've given you and go before God and say, God, what do I do with this? How do I operate? How do I worship you every day as if you're walking in the field with me? How do I quieten myself? How do I be still before you? How do, I, how do I operate in who you are? What does that look like for me because my life's too busy or this or that or my this or my that? How do I get rid of all of that to come back in a raw reality of you, to stand before you? That's what God's saying to us in a time. That's what God is saying. The mess out there doesn't have to be the mess in here. The mess out in the world doesn't have to be the mess in your heart. If, if you will quiet yourself before me, if you will call to him, if you will allow him to lead you to the still waters. Why don't you stand and we'll just pray and then we can go eat hundreds of donuts and buy a daddy-o a coffee. to select which daddy is going to get my coffee. Yeah, I'm going to buy one for someone. No, I don't know who yet though. Jesus, we come before you right now. Quieten ourselves. God, I pray for all of us as we begin to move forward, Lord, 
that those moments of what am I doing, I'm a grown adult, don't ever come back for any of us. That we can become before you like children to stand quietly and wait for your answer. To stand quietly and wait for your voice. Lead us, Lord. Lead us, your people, to those cities that you promised, to where our hand, where your hand will count us once again, to make this city, your city, a city known for its joy and its worship of you. Lead us, God. Mold us and make us. Break down the things that are in us that are not of you. Remove them from our bodies. Remove them from our hearts, God. Bring us back into your fullness, O Jesus. God, we worship you. We honor you. We glorify you. And we trust you. Jesus, in this time, in the turmoil that's swirling outside of these doors, in the turmoil that's swirling in the world at the moment, Lord, we trust you. I know, God, that you have a plan that's better than ours. You have a purpose that's better than ours. Help us dust off our blueprints. Get back out the things that you promised, you said. And let us walk in your direction, Lord. We love you, Jesus. And we honour your beautiful name. Amen. There is donuts at the back. So long as all the dads get one. Randy, are you a dad? Are you a dad? Brandon will get the last donut left. That's Brandon's. Please make sure a dad gets one. Go and buy a dad a coffee. We love you and we will, we will be talking to you. I've carried a burden